0: Hello, this is Robin. For the next hour or so, I'll be reading from the May 17, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The first article, America has become both more and less dangerous since Black Lives Matter. A couple of years ago, Travis Campbell, an economics professor at Southern Oregon University, published a study showing that from 2014 to 2019, Black Lives Matter protests meaningfully reduced police homicides. Those years saw urban protests prompted by the August 9, 2014 shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the April 12, 2015 death in police custody of Freddie Gray in Baltimore. In Black Lives Matter's effect on police lethal use of force, Campbell wrote, BLM protests were responsible for approximately 200 fewer people killed by the police from 2014 to 2019. The payoff for protesting is substantial. Around six of every 1371 protests correspond with approximately one less person killed by the police during this period. The police killed about one less person for every 2,500 participants. Campbell noted in his paper, however, That these gains came with some costs. Total reported homicides increased by 12.89% over the five years following BLM protests, which is consistent with rising overall crime, he wrote. That increase, he added, amounted to over 3,000 homicides. Campbell compared the changing number of police killings and civilian homicides in cities that did and did not experience BLM protests from 2014 to 2019. In an email, Campbell wrote that he was able to explore the effects of protests by comparing early protest cities, Michael Brown era, to cities that do not have a BLM protest until later, George Floyd era. Because both groups eventually have protests, they are likely more comparable than simply comparing cities with and without protests. This allows me to estimate the impact of protests between the start of BLM in 2014 through 2019. In his paper, Campbell readily acknowledged that these two numbers, 200 fewer lethal police shootings, more than 3000 additional civilian homicides, raised questions about the social welfare implications of BLM protests, but he argued against using a measure of lives saved slash lost following protests to determine the social welfare implications of BLM. The welfare implications of civilian and police homicides, Campbell contended, are distinct. Police homicides do not diminish the tragedy of rising civilian homicides. Still, they do have a demonstrable negative impact on Black mental health, educational attainment, and future crime, including murders. They also profoundly threaten community trust and cooperation. Campbell elaborated on this in an email. Directly comparing police homicides to civilian homicides is an apples to oranges comparison, even though in both cases, a life is lost. This is an apples to oranges comparison because police killings have profound effects on other people. The most extreme example is the police killing of George Floyd, which sparked the largest social upheaval in recent US history. To be clear, I am not arguing that civilian homicides do not also affect the wider community only that the effects may be different. Other scholars found additional benefits deriving from the protests. Nationwide Black Lives Matter protests occurred concurrently with sharp increases in public attention to components of the BLM agenda. Zachary Dunavin, Harry Yojun Yan, and Fabio Rojas, all at Indiana University, and Jelani Ink, a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, wrote in a March 2022 paper, Black Lives Matter protests shift public discourse. These increases resulted in a change in public awareness of BLM's vision of social change and the dissemination of anti-racist ideas into popular discourse. Longitudinal data, the four scholars continued, shows that terms denoting the movement's theoretically distinctive ideas, such as systematic racism, receive more attention during waves of protest. These findings indicate that BLM has successfully leveraged protest events to engender lasting changes in the ways that Americans discuss racial inequality. In a July 2021 article, Police Involved Deaths and the Impact on Homicide Rates in the Post-Ferguson Era, Tyler J. Lane, a Senior Research Fellow at Monash University in Australia, found patterns similar to those in the Campbell paper. On the basis of crime data from 44 major cities from 2011 to 2019, Lane found a 26.1% increase in civilian homicides, suggesting that protested police-involved deaths led to an increase in homicides and other violence due to the distrust fomented within the very communities police are meant to protect. Data on all homicide deaths compiled by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows a significant increase in Black death rates from 2014 to 2019, while the death rate among White people remained virtually unchanged. In 2012 and 2013, the Black homicide rate averaged 19.5 for every 100,000 people. From 2014 to 2019, the average rose to 22.7. Among white people, the homicide rate went from 2.55 per 100,000 in 2012 and 2013 to 2.8. Campbell's methodology did not allow him to measure reductions in police homicides or increases in civilian murders after the death of Floyd on May 25, 2020. CDC data shows that the national weekly homicide average was 410 in the 10 weeks before Floyd's death and 523 for the 10 weeks afterward, when protests occurred in cities across the nation. This increase is far larger than the typical change in violent crime from spring to summer, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Campbell's determination that police homicides fell in cities with BLM protests stands in contrast to a study on police behavior after the riots of the 1960s and 1970s. In their 2018 paper, racial differences in police use of force, evidence from the 1960s civil disturbances, Jamin P. Cunningham, a professor of public policy at Cornell, and Rob Giliazou, a professor of economic analysis and policy at the University of Toronto, concluded, African American protests resulted in an immediate increase in police killings of civilians, regardless of race. However, The increased killing of white Americans dissipates after a few years, while the killing of African-American civilians remains elevated into the future. The impact of these uprisings has resulted in several hundred additional African-Americans killed each year by the police. These results paint a depressing picture in which police respond to racial unrest through increased killings of largely non-white civilians. Omar Wassal, A professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley, told Vox in a 2021 interview that the data in the Campbell paper is entirely plausible and not surprising. Wasau is the author of a widely cited 2020 paper, Agenda Seeding, How 1960s Black Protests Moved Elites, Public Opinion, and Voting, which found that evaluating Black-led protests between 1960 and 1972 I find nonviolent activism, particularly when met with state or vigilante repression, drove media coverage, framing congressional speech and public opinion on civil rights. Counties proximate to nonviolent protests saw presidential Democratic vote share among whites increase 1.3 to 1.6 percent. Protester initiated violence, by contrast, helped move news agendas frames elite discourse and public concern toward social control. In 1968, I find violent protests likely caused a 1.6 to 7.9 percent shift among whites toward republicans. John Roman, the director of the Center on Public Safety and Justice of the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, did not dispute Campbell's analysis but questioned the methodology. The real question here is, if the police did change their behavior after the BLM protests, which mechanism did they change? This question is the critical one. If they changed their business model by adopting body cams and using them as an oversight mechanism, which improved professionalism and led to more just and fair policing, that's good. If they changed their business model through a protest of their own, depolicing, that's bad. I don't think the Campbell paper answers that question. Roman argued that there is a strong case that depolicing led to more civilian homicides. The key, according to him, is that homicides increase overall in this period, and this is consistent with the depolicing hypothesis and not consistent with the police adopting body cams hypothesis. If there are fewer police homicides because the police are policing less, Roman continued. That is likely to be the only positive outcome from a change in behavior that has many negative effects. Roman challenged Campbell's claim that it is unfair to simply compare police homicides with civilian homicides because the two have very different consequences in their communities. I don't think the research is clear on this question, Roman wrote by email. My view, having studied the economic harms of criminal victimization for a long time is that all of the spillovers from police shootings also occur in civilian shootings adding i don't think saying that minimizes the harm from police homicides there is something unique about the blm protests protests and the floyd murder in particular roman wrote there was little police trust and cooperation in the highest violence neighborhoods before blm what changed was that those sentiments expanded to people less likely directly affected by civilian violence. I asked Roman to further explain the surgeon homicides and he wrote back. It's just my opinion, of course, but clearly there was an unprecedented level of toxic stress that contributed to the surgeon violence. The depolicing, whether intentional or just a result of pulling back for officer health and safety, set the stage. At least in neighborhoods where violence is most common, I tend to think of the surge in violence and the surge in protests as stemming from the same source of hopelessness. The overall increase in civilian homicides in recent years has had a profoundly adverse impact on children. In May, a May 2019 study, new evidence of the nexus between neighborhood violence, perceptions of danger, and child health, concluded that neighborhood violence, exposure, and perceptions of danger yielded the strongest associations with health difficulties, for example, headaches, stomach aches, or breathing problems, chronic physical conditions, developmental disorders, and mental health conditions. In a June 2018 Scientific American article, Living with Neighborhood Violence May Shape Teens' Brains, Darby Saxby, a professor of psychology at the University of Southern California wrote, Kids living with the stress of community violence may become less engaged in school, withdraw from friends, or show symptoms of post-traumatic stress like irritability and intrusive thoughts. In short, living in an unsafe community can have a corrosive effect on child development. A November 2011 Analysis, The Effects of Community Violence on Child Development by Nancy G. Guerra, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Irvine, and Carly Heising, a professor at the Cal State Los Angeles School of Criminal Justice, found that exposure to community violence is among the most detrimental experiences children can have, impacting how they think, feel, and act. Children who experience violence, they continued, are more likely to become ensnared in a cycle of violence that leads to future violent behavior, including aggression, delinquency, violent crime, and child abuse. In addition, Guerra and Dirk wrote, violence exposure has been shown to contribute to mental health problems during childhood and adolescence. Psychiatric disorders, including depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, are found at higher rates among youth exposed to community violence. There has been an extensive debate among scholars and political analysts over the relationship between the increase in homicides after the killings of brown and gray the murder of Floyd, the BLM protests, and increased levels of depolicing. In a June 2021 Washington Post essay, we don't know why violent crime is up, but we know there's more than one cause. Aaron Chalfin and John McDonald, criminologists at the University of Pennsylvania, argued that during the coronavirus pandemic, a number of factors changed simultaneously in American cities making it difficult to isolate the precise combination of ingredients behind the surge in violence. Some have hypothesized that the rise in homicide rates is specifically a result of the June 2020 protests, Chalfin and McDonald wrote, but theories about the role of the protests must contend with several challenges. Violence typically climbs during the summer, and in 2020, that happened to correspond not only with the protests, but also with an end to the most intensive COVID lockdowns in many cities, making it hard to pin blame on any one cause without more examination. In a 2020 article explaining the recent homicide spikes in U.S. cities, the Minneapolis effect, and the decline in proactive policing, Paul G. Cassell, a law professor at the University of Utah, saw a clear relationship between the protests, the police reaction to them, and the rising homicide rate. Crime rates are increasing only for a few specific categories, namely homicides and shootings. These crime categories are particularly responsive to reductions in proactive policing. The data also pinpoint the timing of the spikes to late May 2020, which corresponds with the death of George Floyd while in police custody in Minneapolis and subsequent anti-police protests protests that likely led to declines in law enforcement. Cassell wrote that his thesis is that the recent spikes in homicides have been caused by a Minneapolis effect, similar to the earlier Ferguson effect. If this thesis is correct, he continued, it is reasonable to estimate that as a result of depolicing during June and July 2020, approximately 710 additional victims were murdered and more than 2,800 victims were shot. Thomas Hargrove, the founder of the nonprofit Murder Accountability Project, which tracks unsolved homicides, made a detailed argument for a strong link between the protests, depolicing, and the increase in homicides in an August 2022 essay, Murder and the Legacy of the Police Killing of George Floyd. What is beyond debate is that homicides increased dramatically in 2020, murders surged nearly 30% the largest one-year increase on record. When weekly homicides are studied, he continued, citing data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a very clear pattern emerges. Although social and economic disruption caused by COVID began in early 2020, it wasn't until the week ending May 30th that weekly homicides topped 500 for the first time in many years. Although unemployment caused by COVID surged in April, There was little, if any, increase in murders at that time. Homicide began the the historic hike exactly in the week when George Floyd was murdered. There may have been several contributing factors to the surge in U.S. homicides, Hargrove concluded, but George Floyd's murder was the very specific spark that lit the fuse to an extraordinary increase in fatal violence. He added Law enforcement is learning from this experience police officers must be trained to avoid unnecessary deaths like George Floyd's, acting as guardians of society and not as anti-crime warriors. Patrick Sharkey, a Princeton sociologist who writes about policing and crime, provided a nuanced response to this issue by email. There are plausible reasons to think that the movement to change the way police carry out their work in Black communities and to end police violence against Black Americans has created real changes with tangible consequences. In cities where the police have been asked, for decades, to dominate public spaces by force and then are required to change the way they do their job, whether by public protest, local mobilization, public opinion, or court order, there is often a destabilization of the local social order that can result in multiple shifts. In this changed environment, Sharkey continued, police may no longer get involved in incidents where they have discretion. Residents may no longer provide information to police or go along with the way things used to work, and guns may start to circulate more widely. But, Sharkey stressed, this doesn't mean that Black Lives Matter protests cause police killings to fall and other forms of violence to rise. It means that when cities rely primarily on the police, to deal with violence and all of the other challenges that come with extreme inequality and then the role or practices of the police begin to shift, there are often clear impacts on police killings and other forms of violence. The key challenge is how to develop a new model that confronts violence without the costs that come with aggressive or violent policing and mass incarceration. That is the challenge that every city should be grappling with. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is titled, Legalizing Marijuana is a Big Mistake. Of all the ways to win a culture war, the smoothest is to just make the other side seem hopelessly uncool. So it's been with the march of marijuana legalization. There have been moral arguments about the excesses of the drug war And medical arguments about the potential benefits of pot, but the vibe of the whole debate has pitted the chill against the uptight, the cool against the square, the relaxed future against the principal skinners of the past. As support for legalization has climbed, commanding a two-thirds majority in recent polling, any contrary argument has come to feel a bit futile, and even modest cavils are couched in in an apologetic and defensive style. Of course, I don't question the right to get high, but perhaps the pervasive smell of weed in our cities is a bit unfortunate. I'm not a narc or anything, but maybe New York City doesn't need quite so many unlicensed pot dealers. All of this means that it will take a long time for conventional wisdom to acknowledge the truth that seems readily apparent to squares like me. Marijuana legalization, as we've done it so far, has been a policy failure. A potential social disaster, a clear and evident mistake. The best version of the squares case is an essay by Charles Fane Lehman of the Manhattan Institute explaining his evolution from youthful libertarian to grown-up prohibitionist. It will not convince readers who come in with stringently libertarian presuppositions who believe on high principle that consenting adults should be able to purchase, sell, and enjoy almost any substance short of fentanyl, and that no second-order social consequence can justify infringing on this right. But Layman explains in detail why the second-order effects of marijuana legalization have mostly vindicated the pessimists and skeptics. First, on the criminal justice front, the expectation that legalizing pot would help reduce America's prison population by clearing out nonviolent offenders was always overdrawn since marijuana convictions made up a small share of the incarceration rate, even at its height. But Lehman argues that there is also no good evidence so far that legalization reduces racially discriminatory patterns of policing and arrests. In his view, cops often use marijuana as a pretext to search someone they suspect of a more serious crime, and they simply substitute some other pretext when the law changes, leaving arrest rates basically unchanged. So legalization isn't necessarily striking a great blow against mass incarceration or for racial justice, nor is it doing great things for public health. There was hope in some early evidence that legal pot might substitute for opioid use, but some of the more recent data cuts the other way. A new paper published in the Journal of Health Economics found that legal medical marijuana, particularly when available through retail dispensaries, is associated with higher opioid mortality. There are therapeutic benefits to cannabis that justify its availability for prescription, but the evidence for its risks keeps increasing. This month brought a new paper strengthening the link between heavy pot use and the onset of schizophrenia in young men. And the broad downside risks of marijuana beyond extreme dangers like schizophrenia remain as evident as ever a form of personal degradation, of lost attention and performance and motivation that isn't mortally dangerous in the way of heroin, but that can damage or derail an awful lot of human lives. Most casual pot smokers won't have this experience, but the legalization era has seen a dramatic increase in the number of non-casual users. Occasional use has risen substantially since 2008 But daily or nearly daily use is up much more with around 16 million Americans out of more than 50 million users now suffering from what is termed marijuana use disorder. In theory, there are technocratic responses to these unfortunate trends. In its ideal form, legalization would be accompanied by effective regulation and taxation, and as layman notes on paper, It should be possible to discourage addiction by raising taxes in the legal market effectively nudging users toward more casual consumption in practice it hasn't worked that way because of all the years of prohibition a mature and supple illegal marketplace already exists ready to undercut whatever price the legal market charges so to make the legal marketplace successful and amenable to regulation You would probably need much more enforcement against the illegal marketplace which is difficult and expensive and again obviously uncool in conflict with the good vibration spirit of the legalizers then you have the extreme case of new york where legal permitting has lagged while untold numbers of illegal shops are doing businesses unmolested by the police but even in less incompetent seeming states and localities a similar pattern persists. Layman cites and has reviewed the recent book, Can Legal Weed Win? The Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics by Robin Goldstein and Daniel Sumner, which shows that unlicensed weed can cost as much as 50% less than the licensed variety. So the more you tax and regulate legal pot sales, the more you run the risk of having users just switch to the black market. And if you want the licensed market to crowd out the black market, Instead, you probably need to make legal pot as cheap as possible, which in turn undermines any effort to discourage chronic life-altering abuse. Thus, policymakers who don't want so much chronic use and personal degradation have two options. They can set out to design a much more effective, but necessarily expensive, complex, and sometimes punitive system of regulation and enforcement that what exists so far than what exists so far. Or they can reach for the blunt instrument of recriminalization, which Lehman prefers for its simplicity, with medical exceptions still carved out and with the possibility that possession could remain legal and that only production and distribution be prohibited. I expect legalization to advance much further before either of these alternatives builds significant support, but eventually the culture will recognize that under the banner of personal choice, We're running a general experiment in exploitation, addicting our more vulnerable neighbors to a myriad pleasant seeming vices, handing to our children and social media dopamine machine and spreading degradation wherever casinos spring up and weed shops flourish. The next article is titled, Canada's wildfires have been disrupting lives. Now oil and gas take a hit. Wildfires sweeping across Western Canada that have driven thousands of people from their homes are also striking the heart of Canadian oil and gas country, forcing companies to curb production. As flames bore down on wells and pipelines, major drillers like Chevron and Paramount Resources together shut down the equivalent of at least 240,000 barrels of oil a day, according to the energy consulting firm Rystad Energy what it means, fires are sending oil prices higher. The damage to oil and gas production was likely to significantly surpass current tallies, Thomas Lyles, vice president of Rystad's upstream research, said in a note. A large part of Alberta's shale gas-producing regions remained under extreme or very high wildfire warnings. Another 2.7 million barrels of a day of oil sands production was also at risk. The disruptions from the fires in Canada, a major oil and gas producing nation, have helped push oil prices higher. Chevron said it had shut down all production at its K-Bob DuVernay oil and gas fields in central Alberta. Paramount temporarily shuttered a natural gas processing plant along with production in several gas fields, the company said in its latest update on Sunday. Both companies said they were prioritizing the safety of their workers. Background, oil and gas are also vulnerable to climate change. It isn't the first time Canada's oil and gas fields have been hit by fires, and the shutdowns, for now, affect a small proportion of the country's total oil and gas output. Still, they underscore how the production of oil and gas the main driver of climate change, is also vulnerable to the increasingly dire consequences of a warming planet. As climate change intensifies, the risk of devastating wildfires around the world will surge, the National United Nations warned in a landmark report last year. Researchers found that in regions with long histories of wildfires, like the western United States and Canada, The burning has become larger and more intense over the last decade. The fires come amid a multi year drought and much warmer temperatures than are normal in Western Canada, which climate scientists attribute to climate change. And in recent years, Alberta has been more affected by climate related disasters than almost any other part of the country, including severe floods in 2013, a previous round of devastating wildfires in 2016 and thunderstorms that brought billions of dollars in damage in 2018. While it's hard to say how much climate disasters will affect Canada's oil and gas industry, the, week, the country can expect more shutdowns, said Ryan Ness, Director of Adaptation Research at the nonprofit Canadian Climate Institute. Canada is in a difficult situation in that the oil and gas industry has been a very important part of our economy for a long time, Mr. Ness said. But the reality is that the world has to shift away from fossil fuels and meet our greenhouse emissions targets, or else the types of extreme weather and wildfires and the like we're seeing will just become unsurvivable. The next article is titled Oldest Nearly Complete Hebrew Bible Sells for $38.1 Million. The oldest near complete Hebrew Bible. Sold at Sotheby's for $38.1 million on Wednesday, one of the highest prices for a book or historical document ever sold at auction. The volume, known as the Codex Sassoon, includes all 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, minus about 8 leaves, including the first 10 chapters of Genesis. Researchers have dated it to the late 9th or early 10th century, making it the oldest near-complete Hebrew Bible known to exist. Since 1989, it has been owned by the Swiss financier and collector Jacqui Safra and has been seen by few scholars. Speculation had percolated for months over who might have the desire, in deep pockets, to acquire the Bible, which carried an estimate of 30 million to 50 million. Shortly after the auction, Sotheby's announced that the buyer was the American Friends of ANU, Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv and was made possible by a donation from Alfred H. Moses, a former ambassador to Romania, and his family. The Codex Sassoon will be donated to the museum, previously known as the Museum of the Jewish Diaspora, and be part of the court exhibition. The Hebrew Bible is the most influential in history and constitutes the bedrock of Western civilization, Moses said in a statement. I rejoice in knowing that it belongs to the Jewish people. It was my mission, realizing the historic significance of Codex Sassoon, to see it reside in a place with global access to all people. The price tag of $38.1 million, including buyers fees, may seem like a relative pittance compared with the stratospheric prices reached regularly at high profile art auctions, but such figures are obtained only rarely for books and historical documents. For years, the high price at auction was held by the Codex Leicester, a Leonardo da Vinci manuscript bought by Bill Gates in 1994 for $30.8 million, $62.4 million in today's dollars. Then, in November 2021, came a new benchmark, the $43.2 million paid by the investor Ken Griffin for a first printing of the U.S. Constitution. The Codex Sassoon, had last been sold at auction in 1989 for $3.19 million—nearly $8 million in today's dollars—to a dealer who subsequently sold it to Safra for an unknown price. Even in its own time, the book was an expensive object, requiring the skins of easily more than 100 animals to create its roughly 400 parchment leaves. The text was written by a single scribe. It is a masterpiece of scribal art. Sharon Liberman-Mintz, Sotheby's Senior Consultant for Judaica, told New York Times in February. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Meeting Service. The next article is titled, Johnny Depp at Cannes, I Don't Have Much Further Need for Hollywood. At a news conference, the controversial star of the opening night film used McDonald's metaphors to answer questions about how he is viewed. Cannes, France. At first, you had to wonder if they were running out the clock. 20 minutes after the Cannes Film Festival News Conference for Jean Du Barry was supposed to begin on Wednesday, neither the film's actress director, Mai Wen, nor her lead actor, Johnny Depp, had actually shown up. Were they hoping to avoid questions? For Mai Wen, who was accused of spitting on a journalist in February, and Depp, who recently won a defamation suit against his ex-wife Amber Heard after she made allegations of physical and sexual abuse, queries about their personal scandals could overwhelm all talk of the movie they were meant to promote. Both had been in attendance the previous night when Jean Dujardin opened the festival, but Cannes premieres are famously fawning and conclude with a customary standing ovation meeting the press would be a whole different matter. Depp, who has not starred in a major Hollywood film in five years, had already missed the morning photo call for Jeanne DuBerry, a French-language drama in which he plays Louis, 15, opposite Mai Wen's titular courtesan. It fell to Mai Wen to shoulder that appointment alone, and 25 minutes after the Jean DuBerry press conference was meant to start, Mai Wen entered the media room with her leading man still nowhere to be found. At first, she talked around his absence, revealing that she had originally offered Depp's role to several French actors who passed. Eventually, she reached out to Depp, reasoning that his nationality was less important than her other concerns. I wanted to feel strongly about the actor, particularly as I would be hugging and kissing him later on. Questions to Ma Wen were mostly kept to a minimum, and none were about her altercation with the French journalist Edwy Plainel. Who said Maywen spat on him in a Paris restaurant? Something she more or less confirmed because he had been investigating multiple claims of sexual abuse against the director Luc Bassan, who had a son with Maywen when she was just 16. Bassan denied the accusations from nine women, and the French authorities said that after an inquiry, the director would face no charges, if nothing else, Khans is a reminder that nearly every major figure in the French film industry has a sizable controversy section on Wikipedia. But it was all just a warm up for Depp, who entered 42 minutes late to extensive muttering from the journalists, then walked over to the dais to kill, kiss Mai Wen on the top of her head. Depp, who smoke, spoke mostly in murmured metaphors, at first discussed the French language requirements of the role but he was soon asked whether he felt that Hollywood had boycotted him after he was bounced from the Fantastic Beasts franchise in 2020 as his legal battles with Heard began to heat up. Of course, if you're asked to resign from a film, you're doing because of something that is merely a bunch of vowels and consonants floating in the air. Yeah, you feel boycotted, Depp said. Do I feel boycotted now? No, not at all. But I don't feel boycotted by Hollywood because I don't think about it. I don't have much further need for Hollywood myself. The 59 year old Depp continued. It's a very strange funny time where everybody would love to be able to be themselves, but they can't. They must fall in line with the person in front of them. If you want to live that life, I wish you the best. I'll be on the other side somewhere. Depp's presence at the festival has caused no shortage of controversy and though he was cheered at the Jeanne du Barry premiere, an open letter in Liberation, signed by more than 100 actors, criticized the festival for allowing him to attend. That missive followed a blistering open letter published by Adèle Hanel, a star of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, who announced she would be retiring from the French film industry because of its generalized complacency towards sexual aggressors. Reminded that there are people who think he shouldn't have come to cons, Depp launched into a metaphor about being banned from McDonald's, then imagined his critics as 39 angry people watching me eat a Big Mac on a loop. Who are they? Why do they care? Some species or tower of mashed potatoes, covered in the light of a computer screen, anonymous, apparently with a lot of spare time. I don't think I'm the one who should be worried. Efforts to steer the conversation back to Jean Dujardin were mostly half-hearted. Depp continued to rail against the media and his critics, insisting, for the last five or six years, in regards to me, the majority of what you've read is fantastically, horrifically written fiction. But when asked whether he felt the film might lead to a career comeback, Depp was blasé. I keep wondering about the word comeback, he said. I didn't go anywhere. As a matter of fact, I live about 45 minutes away, Maybe people stopped calling out of whatever their fear was at the time, but I didn't go nowhere. I've been sitting around. The next article is titled, The Lies Mothers Tell Themselves and Their Children. I learned I wasn't wanted during a party game. One Christmas, home from college, I went to a holiday gathering of families with my parents. After dinner, we played a game where husbands answered frank questions on behalf of their wives. When my parents' turn came, the host asked my father, how many children did you want when you got married? My dad, ventriloquizing my mother, snapped, zero, definitely zero. She nodded along, unfazed, as everyone in the room laughed uneasily. Her blunt response rattled me, though it didn't surprise me or anyone else in the room. Low-grade frustration and resentment, paired with unwavering, tight-lipped competence, She would mother us by accomplishing the checklist mandated by the job, which involves subjugating what she wanted to our needs. But this didn't mean she would love it. Before you think my mother must be a monster, she's not. Besides being shockingly honest, she's curious, brilliant, with a laugh that's loud, melodic, and inspires others to laughter. And she loved my older brother and me, even as she refused to take a knee at the altar of motherhood. Perhaps her parenting style would have been different if she had been mothered herself, but she felt the sharpness and pain of not being wanted by her own mom, in fact, actively disliked. As the oldest of seven in a poor household in Iowa, my mom looked after her siblings, a parentified child who lived with the scarcity of both food and opportunity. My grandmother was largely uninterested in her kids and often cruel to the girls specifically. My mother went to a now defunct nursing school, met my doctor dad at the Mayo Clinic, and signed up for his dream, an upper middle class life out west with horses and kids. Sure, she didn't want children or large animals, but it was a safe choice, one she could manage. Unlike her mother, my mom didn't shirk the practicalities of the job. She read all the parenting theories, pursued all the extracurriculars for both of us, and picked the right schools for us to attend. She ran our existence like air traffic control, and she made all that labor invisible. She was good at it, but it's not just who she wanted to be. As an adult, I understand and respect this, but as a child, I wanted the mommy and me outfits, stuffed animal tea parties, and many petty dates as a manifestation of her bliss in the role. I wanted her to be like other moms who at least had the good sense to perform their devotion to their children ritually and publicly. My brother and I attended boarding school for high school, an unexpected turn for two kids from Montana. My brother was desperate to go, and so I followed. Homesick, I remember asking my mom to send a care package. What's in a care package, she asked. Oh, I don't know. You could send me brownies. You want me to bake brownies and mail them across the country? Why don't I send you some money and you can go to the grocery store and buy some brownie mix? My mom mothered so as to keep up her side of the bargain, an agreement she made with my dad, but never with me. Instead of giving me her delight in my presence, delight she couldn't fake, she would give me what she wanted for herself, opportunity, untethered and unbridled opportunity. I used to watch as she read Ms. Magazine, sitting upright at the dining room table. She came of age during second wave feminism, when women kind of had a choice and kind of didn't. This made my mom's ambivalence about motherhood starker and more insistent. It's within the realm of possibility that my mom's life could have gone a different, more ambitious way. As a child, I sensed her envy and her longing as she surveyed women who were doing something with their lives. She saw herself in these important women's faces. She rated her talent and intelligence as equivalent to theirs if not higher, even as she was sidelined as support staff for the next generation. It is tough to be your mother's jailer. My mom gave me everything and for this, received nothing that she wanted in return. This is a heavy inheritance. I tried to pay my mother for her sacrifice with good behavior to make the destruction of her own unrealized ambition worthwhile. I was a high achieving child, winning awards, earning accolades, my own at adult dinner parties. I wanted to reflect my glory back on her, to make the oblation of her talent worth it. I wanted to earn for her the title of good mother through what I accomplished, even as she insisted, with unvarnished honesty, that my achievements were my own and that it's not a title for which she much cared. But I care. As Carl Jung famously said, nothing is more influential in a child's life than the unlived life of the parent. My mother's unlived life ricochets inside my life. My mom is an ardent reader. It's probably no coincidence that my brother is a book editor and I make my living with words. And like her, I have children, but I wanted mine. In this anxious inheritance from my mother and grandmother, I've both under and over corrected. Most of what I provide to my kids is nurturance, care, and a soft lap before bed. I have excellent paid help to address many of their practical needs, I indulge them a lot. They participate in zero extracurriculars and do not have great table manners. I have no clue whether they'll go to college, much less a good one. I devalued what my mother gave me, structure, scaffolding, to give my children what I didn't receive, the unrelenting insistence that they are wanted. I once thought my desperation to prove and claim being a good mother was a hangover from a performative childhood. But as I've grown further into motherhood, Weighing my own identity against my mom's, I recognize that her ambivalence is not only a familial trait, but also a cultural one. I carry it, too. You can love your kids deeply and hate being a mom. You can hold your children to the bone and still proclaim how sucky it is to be a female parent, in America at least, with our lack of paid family leave or high-quality daycare and the cultural insistence that good women should stake their entire lives on the opportunity. While my mother largely swallowed her resentment and observed the niceties, I am done being good. I am not only done, but also furious that I feel so cleaved in two. This anger is a flame sparked by my grandmother and probably by her mother too. My mother turned her anger into a steady kitchen fire, but in me, it roars. I've built my own emotional freedom on the pyre of my mom's honesty on her willingness to give voice to resentment when so many women felt compelled to lie. Even though it was painful at times when I was a child, particularly because she was different from other moms, though I insist, not that unusual, she did create a coherent narrative for me. This narrative has proved to be less emotionally confusing than for some of my friends who can sense and yet not name their own mother's frustration and rage. They seek to resolve this angst through their own good behavior not recognizing that they are the collateral damage of their mother's anger, but not its source. It's not actually about them. The ambivalence comes from a societal expectation that you should love the identity of mother and love your kids. There are some women for whom these are easily conflated and conjoined, but for many, they are not. The next article is titled, Before Smartphones and the National Weather Service, There Was Grandma's Knee humans have long depended on weather forecasts for survival while observations of the sky can make for reliable predictions experts say those of animal activity can lead weather watchers astray i thought my grandmother was psychic one day in the mid-90s in richmond virginia where i grew up the temperature had climbed above 100 degrees as it often did during the height of summer everything seemed to be melting under the oppressive heat that day My grandmother looked down and began to vigorously massage her knees like a soothsayer rubs a crystal ball. Staring at me, she said, it's going to storm. She was right. I later learned that my grandmother was not psychic. She was instead using the pain in her joints to predict rain, a phenomenon that has been widely studied with inconclusive results. Before humans became reliant on technology, we used our senses, including observing animal behavior and shapes of clouds, To help predict the weather. Over time, those observations were stitched together, forming a history, said Mark Wysocki, a state climatologist for New York and professor of meteorology at Cornell University. People started to either pass these on verbally or, as civilization started to evolve more, people would start writing these things down, he said. Sandy Duncan, the managing editor of Farmer's Almanac, Where weather lore is still regularly discussed, like in passing down weather lore over time to a game of telephone, adding that some of it may have been changed in order to rhyme. Human survival, particularly that of sailors and fishermen, has historically depended in large part on the weather. One of the most recognizable anecdotes, mackerel clouds in the sky expect more wet than dry can be traced back at least a couple hundred of years to mariners. At sea, there was no communication back then. There's no cell phone, Mr. Waisaki said. So the sailors had to rely upon the sky conditions, the wind direction, the waves. Ship captains would write down their observations in logs, which would be shared. The science behind the phrase holds up. Clouds that resemble the scales on a mackerel are called altocumulus clouds, and form in in advance of an approaching large storm, Mr. Waisaki said. If you would see something like this coming, then that's kind of a warning sign that we have an unstable atmosphere, he said. Weather lore related to sky color and cloud shapes can be explained by science, Mr. Waisaki said. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning is generally true. When a red sky is observed at sunset, the sun's light is traveling through a high concentration of dust particles, typically a sign of high pressure and stable air arriving from the west, according to the Library of Congress. When a sunrise is red in color, it means that good weather has already passed, signaling a potential storm could be moving in. Anecdotes based on birds, insects, and other kinds of animals are often less scientific and can be misleading. In the Midwest and Northeast, the woolly Bear Caterpillar is sometimes used to predict the severity of an upcoming winter. According to weather lore, the longer the caterpillar's black bands, the harsher the winter will be. The opposite is predicted if the middle brown band is wider. The National Weather Service debunked this myth. The colors on a woolly bear caterpillar are directly related to how long it has been feeding, its age, and species. Similarly, efforts to use groundhogs in early February to predict six more weeks of winter or an early spring, have been debunked. Squirrels gathering nuts in a flurry will cause snow to gather in a hurry, is another popular weather proverb, but Mr. Waisaki said it is false. Conditions may simply have been optimal for oak trees to produce more acorns, giving the appearance that squirrels are gathering more. People see it once and they don't go back to check 20-40 times, he said of the seemingly related phenomena. You have to have multiple experiments, multiple observations in order to get this thing to work out. Farmers also once relied upon these sayings, some of which were printed in almanacs. When we started the Farmers' Almanac in 1818, we offered weather forecasts, but they were much more general than they are now, Ms. Duncan said. The change from winter to spring regularly brings severe weather to large portions of the United States. In early March, a string of powerful storms killed at least 12 across Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Tennessee. I think we're in for a fairly active severe weather season, said John Serlin, a storm chaser for more than 30 years. Mr. Serlin, 47, lives in Arizona and prefers chasing storms in the northern high plains. He is familiar with weather lore and regularly uses basic observations along with technology to predict weather behavior. There are so many different things you can learn about the weather just by using your senses," he said, including paying attention to wind direction and noticing the changing shapes of clouds which can reveal the stability of the atmosphere. But that information must be read correctly to assess potential dangers like hail and tornadoes or, in the case of my grandmother and her aching joints, thunderstorms. What is really cool about the atmosphere is that it gives you clues and signals about all of these different things If you learn to pick up on them and interpret them correctly, he said. This spring, he and Storm Chasers fanned out across the United States in anticipation of severe weather. Mr. Serlin has a lifelong passion and obsession with weather and notes that he is always learning. Thirty-something years in, every time I go out, I'm always learning something new and picking up on something different. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features From the May 17, 2023 issue of the New York Times, your reader has been Robin. Thanks for listening.